Hi everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Risk and Regulation Rundown, the podcast where we share our views and insights on the latest hot topics in financial services risk and regulation. My name's Tessa Norman, I'm a Senior Manager in PwC's Financial Services Regulatory Insights Team and I'm your regular host for this podcast. In today's episode, we're joined by a special guest dining in from the US to talk about the regulatory landscape in the US and how that compares to policymakers and regulators' priorities here in the UK, covering everything from Basel 3.1 to risk management, consumer protection and ESG, and unpacking how all of that impacts firms with a global footprint. I'm delighted to be joined by two experts to help explain how firms should navigate what's a very complex and and busy regulatory agenda on both sides of the Atlantic. So I'm joined by Adam Gilbert, PwC's Global Senior Regulatory Advisor on Financial Services Risk and Regulation, and who's joining us from the US, and Conor McManus, a Director in our Financial Services Regulatory Insights Team in the UK, and who's a return guest to the podcast. Welcome to you both. Great to be here. Thanks, Tessa. Thank you for having me, Tessa. Uh, so, Adam, I'll start with a bit of an understatement. It's been a, a busy few months in the US and, and a lot of that recent activity that we've seen from government, Congress and, and regulators has been driven by the reaction to the market disruption and, and some of the bank failures that we saw earlier this year. And we've also had the final Basel III endgame proposals published very recently. Do you want to kick us off by kind of setting the scene and, and sharing your thoughts on some of those major themes and initiatives which are really shaping regulatory priorities in the US at the moment? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tessa. Uh, I think it'd be helpful to set up two parts uh, to that discussion. The the first is the the supervisory side, and then the second is the regulatory side. Uh, And it's important to make those distinctions because a lot of what's been happening uh, in the regulatory space generally relates to the uh, examiners on the ground in the U.S., um, at the banks, following on to the events of SVB's failure uh, and the analysis and concerns that came out of uh, Silicon Valley Bank failure. So there's been a lot of activity uh, that the supervisors have pursued at the at individual bank level and, and also horizontally across the industry following that. In addition, there have been a number of important rulemakings, and you mentioned the Basel III, the so-called Basel III endgame in the United States as it's taken on uh, that that name. Uh, So there's been a lot of regulatory activity as well. On the supervisory side, concerns coming out of the SVB failure and the other uh, two bank failures as well, three really, relate to concerns about liquidity risk management and interest rate risk management. Uh, And the examiners have kind of come out in force uh, to review the practices of banks uh, in those areas. And uh, as a result, banks have had to take a step back and look at their practices around liquidity risk management the same is is coming is following on with interest rate risk management uh, as well. So there's been a lot of activity uh, there. That's in addition to the normal kind of supervisory uh, uh, review process uh, to begin with. So you, you've had these kind of special focused exams that have come on top of um, what was probably on the schedule already for 
for any individual banks um, review. Uh, in addition, the, a few other areas are, are, are of note. Um, there have been proposed rulemakings around um, consumer protection um, and fair lending, which is an important area in the United States, a very important focus, especially for the Biden administration. Uh, so there are parts of Dodd-Frank still being implemented by the CFPB around uh, small business lending data, as well as uh, uh, regulation around the con consumer's control of their data and providing access to third parties, uh, as well as um, focus on uh, fees, late fees and others, um, fees that uh, banks charge for um, customers being late with payments and so forth. So uh, that's been important. So if you think about the full range of financial resource management and operational resiliency, um, uh, all of that's been in play in the United States over the last several months. Great, thank you. Yeah, really wide-ranging agenda that, that you've spoken to there and, and, and a lot of those themes and, and, um, and issues that you've mentioned really speak to some of the priorities here in the UK as well. Um, so Connor, it'd be great if you could give us a sort of comparative high-level view in terms of the, the UK's regulatory agenda and, and priorities and, and what's really driving those at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, li listen to Adam and you, you can see the scale of the activity over in the US and it, you know, I think it's equally busy here in the UK. I mean, I think there's a number of things um, driving that. So the Financial Services and Markets Act passed Parliament uh, in July, and that's a really important milestone for the UK's post-Brexit regulatory framework. It really sets out the way in which we're going to regulate our financial services sector. But it's also going to be a trigger for a lot of activity. So I think you know what the Act does is uh, in essence give the regulators the powers to make a, a suite of changes to EU onshored regulation, MIFID, PRIPS, USITS, all of those acronyms that we're so familiar with from, from looking at financial services regulation, all of these dossiers to be looked at, reviewed, and amendments made. So I think that's a process which is really kicking off at the moment. Uh, we'll really start in, in earnest in, in, in the autumn. So we're going to see a huge amount of activity in that space. We've also got um, the regulators really responding to technology and innovation, some of the topics that, that Adam mentioned. So, so crypto is clearly on that list. Regulation of AI, an incredibly important priority for the government here in the UK. Um, and, and regulators really responding to technological innovation and change in the sector. Um, ESG, clearly a big, big priority here in the UK, both from a climate risk perspective for the PRA, but the FCA being much more assertive with firms in saying, we really want you to embed this into your business model, your operating model. That's an, ag an agenda which continues to, to, to grow. And then consumer duty um, came into force at the end of, of July. Um, we, we can talk about that in a bit more detail, but clearly a lot of activity and a lot of work being driven off that. So I think, I mean, you know, headline headline message is the regulatory agenda here in the UK is, is probably as busy as it's ever been. Yeah, absolutely. And and um, of course, Adam talked about the sort of uh, regulatory and supervisory response to, to the bank failures over, over in, in the US that we've seen so far. What are we seeing on that in, in the UK, Connor? How have we seen the, the PRA responding to that market disruption? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's there's some commonalities and there's some differences with the US. I mean, 
the differences are the starting point of the prudential framework uh, that UK banks have faced. So, you know, clearly in the US, there was an initiative in, in 2019, I think it was, to, in effect, reduce the prudential requirements on on banks, which were not the largest banks in the US, but were still relatively significant. Um, so SVB clearly fell into that category. We haven't had that uh, process in the UK. So interest rate risk in the banking book was capitalized. We have liquidity standards, which were applied uh, to, to, to all organizations, uh, all banks in the, in the UK. But clearly the PRA is going through a lessons learned exercise. Um, and I think one of the things that's, which is different again in the UK, is deposit protection. Uh, I believe it's at $250,000 in the US, significantly lower here in the UK, £85,000. Um, the, the experience of, of SVB and all those huge outflows that we saw because of digital banking, some messages we saw being shared around social media, I think clearly regulators across the world, but also here in the UK, are looking at that and thinking about what are the implications of that and how do you respond from a policy perspective and i think you know one of the things that, that that they are clearly looking at and have said so publicly is this point around how can you ensure continuity of access to deposits when a bank gets in, into trouble um, and i think that's that's something we'll see more details from from the bank of england and hmt in in the coming period and, and, and Adam, you, you, you spoke um, uh, insightfully about the, the immediate supervisory response that we've had in the US. How, how do you see the sort of medium to, to longer term response and, and impact? How, how do you see things evolving from here? Well, I think um, they will continue to go through these uh, exercises uh, at, the, at the bank's examinations on liquidity risk management and interest rate risk management. Uh, I'm sure there'll be additional guidance that comes out of that process in addition to the findings for individual firms that they will have to uh, address. And one of the things that we observe here is that, uh, and it's not just related to SVB, but there are other uh, enforcement actions out there that um, uh, indicate this as well, that patience is kind of worn thin um, with recidivism uh, or the inability to kind of um, address uh, supervisory findings in a timely and importantly um, sustainable way. And I think a lot of the focus um, over the, the ensuing months is going to be on delivering clear messages to banks that, hey, when, when we come up with these findings, we expect you to address them in a timely way, uh, in a way that can be validated and that is sustainable. And so we see that examiners are reopening issues or leaving them open because they're not convinced that um, the bank may have addressed the issue in a timely or thorough way. Um, and we see a very big emphasis on testing and controls, uh, testing of controls um, and data quality, lineage, all of that to make sure that um, what the, the information that the bank is using for its risk management and control purposes um, is, is sound, um, can be validated, um, and, and provides a, a strong basis for um, the risk and control environment. 
Great, thank you. And you and you also talked earlier, Adam, about the um the Basel um three endgame proposals that, that that were published at, at the end of July. Um, just be great to delve into that in in a bit more detail, really, in terms of for for, for anyone who's who's maybe not had the time to 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 dive through quite all the one thousand plus pages. What what are the really headline kind of messages from that, and sort of how do you see this impacting the the banking sector when, when it comes into force? Well, it's it it's significant, and you have to kind of um, divide up the the banking sector into into tiers to understand uh, the impacts um, for the largest the for the GSIBs. Uh, there's clearly a, a significant impact uh, in the proposal around the trading book, uh, FRTB, as it's known, Fundamental Review of the Trading Book. And uh, the proposal uh, suggests very significant increases in capital related to trading book uh, activity. Um, for, uh, th- they're also affected by the elimination of the advanced measurement approach for operational risk. So we have a new standardized operational risk uh, approach that will be incorporated here. Um, and that's also um, very impactful uh, to the banks, uh, to the largest banks. The new new thing um, is the application of these rules to banks $100 billion um, and above. And that is a clear outcome of the SVB failure. Um, it is a rollback of the so-called tailoring rule um, that was implemented um, uh, previously. And this is a significant uh, impact to banks in that tier because they're going to have to do things that they've not had to do before, at least as proposed in the rule. We'll see what the final rule comes out, but they will have to incorporate um, AOCI uh, into their uh, capital uh, as a matter of course. It's not an opt out anymore. Um, they will have to do the market risk rule, even if they don't have uh, a lot of activity uh, relative to the largest um, you know, dealers. So they will have to do that as well. So that's a, a new lift for them, um, as well as the operational risk component, which under U.S. rules today is not um, explicit for those that tier of banks uh, in the current standardized uh, approach. So that's a new thing as well. They're, you know, in in. 1100 pages, there's a lot of detail. Uh, and um, we and, and our clients are going through all of that now. There's also the operational side. So implementing this rule is going to be a, a big challenge. Um, you will have to have strong governance, documentation, especially around interpretations of the rules, even though there's a move more towards the stand, standardized approaches, um, which in the market risk rule for the GSIBs is important. So um, there, there's, uh, there's going to be a requirement to get your models validated, uh, so at the desk level. So that is a very big burden in terms of uh, documentation and an approval process. That's just as, uh, one example of, of many of where you're going to have to do a lot more work um, just to implement something which feels like a pretty simple standardized approach, but comes with operational requirements that are significant. Yeah, so certainly lots for firms to both digest and, and then to work through in terms of the implementation. Exactly. Um, so, so Connor, I mean, here in the UK, firms have had a bit more time to, to digest the PRA's Basel III implementation proposals, which came out in November 2022. I mean, do you think there'll be an impact um, now we've seen the, the Fed's approach? You know, might that influence the final outcome we see here in the UK? 
Potentially. I mean, you know, you know, clearly the impacts that, that Adam has just outlined will be pertinent here in the UK. Um, so there's, there's there's definitely a lot of work to be done here as well. I mean, I think, um, you know, there's an interesting dynamic here, which is that, you know, the EU went first with its CRR3 proposals, which have recently been agreed. It took them a while to, to get a political agreement on that. As it, as it usually does because of the process they have to go through. The outcome of that in some areas is quite different from what the Basel Committee ag agreed on. Um, and I think the fact that the EU has diverged from in some areas had, had, has caused some people to question the PRA's approach, which was quite, quite, quite consistent with Basel. I think the fact that the US, obviously another major jurisdiction, um, is, is taking a pretty robust approach to implementation of of Basel 3.1, as we describe it here in the UK, will strengthen the hand of the PRA in sticking quite closely to Basel. So I think I think they will be quite quite pleased to see the the Fed taking a, a robust stance. I mean, I think um, you know, as Adam mentioned, there's a the question of of um, implementing Basel requirements for for those firms that uh, didn't necessarily have to meet all of them before. In the UK, we have a slightly different thing, which is the strong and simple regime, which the PRA is developing for non-internationally active banks, which would would take them out of the Basel requirements. Um, I think that, you know it would be interesting to see how recent events and, and the steps that the Fed are taking in the US influences the development of that regime. Now, I don't think there was ever an intention in the PRA to create a, a regime which was was weak. That's just not the way in which the PRA. Uh, regulates uh, the idea was to to create something which was simpler and didn't have the complexity that that's inherent in the Basel standard. But I think that would be an interesting dynamic um, to to look at as as the PRA develops its framework over over the coming months. Absolutely, thank you. So uh, as 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 we've touched on this, clearly a, a really busy agenda on on the prudential side. But I think you've also both referenced some of the um, developments that we're seeing on the retail conduct agenda, which, which I think is worth just spending a bit more time um, talking about. So Connor, in the UK, you mentioned earlier the FCA consumer duty. So we've just had the first implementation deadline for that, which applies to open retail products and services that came into force at, at the end of July. Um, and there's also sort of broader um, consumer protection and, and financial inclusion part of, of the UK government's agenda. Do you want to just tell us a bit more about how we're seeing that impacting UK firms? Yeah, certainly. I mean, look, consumer duty is a very ambitious um, uh, piece of regulation. It's, you know, it's designed to be paradigm shift i think the fci describes it as you know transformational um so so it's you know understandable that there's a lot of, of work to, to be done and you know as you say the initial deadline has passed and, and firms have got over that hurdle but there's still a lot of work to be done i mean i think really what it's about now is in embedding it throughout the organization and that's something the fca is is asking firms to do so culture, the way in which you design your products, the way in which you interact with your customer base, all of these things, uh, you need to think about the consumer duty in those contexts. I think one of the, the things that firms will have to focus on is data, data availability, to be able to understand their customer base, their needs, the way in which they're interacting with them to make sure that they are delivering good outcomes for, for their customers, which is at the heart of, of the proposal. So I think there's, you know, there's, there's clearly a lot of work to be done in that that space and i think you know it clearly is a big big priority for the fca it's, it's really their kind of 
iconic uh, piece of, of, of regulation. So I would expect that they will be, um, you know, as part of their supervisory approach, the firms looking very closely at how firms have, are embedding it and taking action if they if they see concerns. They've been very clear that they they will do that. And then there's the broader agenda um, that you, you you talk to. You know, clearly the macroeconomic environment is is very challenging at the moment. That's putting pressure on on consumers. Um, the way in which financial services is, is structured and interacts with its customer base is changing. Much more focus on on digital, which is something the regulators are encouraging, but they're also thinking about the implications of this change, particularly for more vulnerable customers. So you have things like the access to cash agenda, um, which uh, which is, is is included in the Financial Services and Markets Act. This is for the payment system regulator to take forward, but will put an obligation on on large banks to to ensure that that customers have fair access to cash. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on in on in this space and you know clearly it's a, a priority for the fca for parliament in particular and, and adam i know you listed consumer protection as one of your kind of top um, agenda items in in the us as well in the priorities you set out at the beginning is that sort of being driven by similar factors to, to those that connor's outlined and is it having a similarly large impact on firms how, how does it compare yeah, I, I think it is, and um, is clearly a priority of this administration. And I think um, we're seeing a high degree of activity, especially now, uh, given, as you know, we have a presidential election in 24 in the United States. I think the um, some of the agencies, in particular CFPB and SEC, look at that election and say, we don't know the outcome, and so we ought to get busy on the agenda um, because we don't know if we'll still be in seat, uh, you know, in, in 18 months' time. And so we're going to put the the uh, you know the pedal to the metal, if you will, uh, to accelerate the policymaking process. And and uh, you can see that in the agendas of, of both those agencies in particular, which are are very assertive and um, you know have a lot on the docket. So very much so concern in a larger sense for the administration and that's flowing down into the regulatory agency. Yeah, absolutely. And that bring, brings us quite nicely to, 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 to ESG and, and climate risk, which you've both mentioned in it, and it's another kind of um, theme and an issue where the sort of um, political kind of policymaking agenda clearly has a big impact. And I think it's one of those areas where, although there's lots of commonalities and approach between the UK and US, as we've talked about, I think ESG and climate is one where where we're seeing a bit more divergence. Um, You know, in the UK and the EU, there's a significant drive towards greater disclosure, greater reporting and and transparency, whereas in in the US, the picture is somewhat different. And I mean, Adam, do you want to just kind of characterise for us how how the um how the US is is currently approaching um, ESG regulation and how that might differ to the UK and EU. Yeah, I mean in the, in the US, um, I think it's um, more cautious, if you will. Uh, there's been a lot of information gathering uh, by the Fed, a lot of learning about how uh, banks are incorporating uh, ESG into their business risk management and, and operations. Uh, and there's a, a, a desire not to be too prescriptive at, at this stage, as it's still relatively early uh, in the whole ESG um, discussion and process. 
So the U.S. I think is taking a bit of a more of a, uh, a principle type approach. We want to see you incorporate this into your uh, broader framework. They're doing uh, a pilot scenario exercise with a small set of large banks, um, but they've made it clear that they're not going to incorporate any prescription into, say, capital rules uh, uh, at this time or require ESG to be a formal component of the formal stress testing process that they run every year. Uh, so it's kind of on, on the side, if you will, a little bit. Um, and I think that reflects, uh, in some respects, the politics in the country around this topic, where interestingly, you have politicians uh, pushing back on corporate leaders for their efforts to uh, try to move towards uh, various net zero targets and incorporate uh, uh, ESG type investments into the portfolios of their customers. And uh, they're getting pushback from politicians on that. So, which is a very interesting uh, dynamic. You don't see that type of political pushback on from, from Republicans in particular in this country on corporate leaders like that. So it's a it's quite an interesting dynamic and um, we'll see how that plays out uh, over the months and, and years ahead. But you haven't really seen that too much before. Yeah. And and, and, and kind of say for firms that have, that have got a global footprint, you know, that, that kind of approach that, that we've just heard about in the US does feel, you know, notably different to, to, to what we see in the UK where ESG is, is, is becoming sort of increasingly central to the regulatory agenda and to firm strategy. So how much of a challenge does that create for, for, for firms which are operating in, in jurisdictions that might be taking different approaches? Yeah, it's very challenging. And, you know, you know, it's an example of where, you know, major jurisdictions have have gone ahead and done their own thing without, you know, an international standard setter taking the lead in the way that we've seen, and for example, on bank prudential requirements. And, you know, there's the political dynamic that you have to navigate that, that Adam alluded to. Um, but there's also just the operational side of having, you know, different, similar regulatory requirements, particularly on disclosure, uh, which is is what we're seeing between the UK and, and the EU, for example. Um, what they're trying to achieve is the same outcome, but they're doing it in a slightly different way. That brings a lot of challenges in terms of, you know, data availability definitions. And, you know, there's a lot of um, emphasis on at least having interoperable regimes that, that reduce that, that, that challenge. But um, at the moment, it looks like um, it looks like quite a, a fragmented global landscape. And, and, and we've talked quite a lot about um, a lot of the live regulatory issues that, that are impacting firms in, in, in the here and now. But I think to kind of to, to finish up our discussion, it'd be great to also get your views on some of the, the forward looking um, issues on the regulatory agenda. I think you both referenced some of those um, uh, themes in, 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 in your kind of opening viewpoint so um in the uk we've we've had a lot from from the government as you said connor about um you know that they want to be really supportive of, of innovation and, and emerging technology and um, how, how are we kind of seeing that starting to to manifest in terms of the the um the uk's priorities and and, and how should firms be, be preparing to respond particularly you know when they're trying to kind of plan ahead for the next kind of next six months next few years in terms of their strategy yeah, I think I mean there's 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 two drivers here. There's um the regulators and the government trying to keep pace with innovation and change in the sector. 
And then there's also the government and regulators trying to encourage um, innovation and change um, across the sector. And, and, and particularly, I think, here in the UK, um, a focus on trying to be as tech-enabled in, in terms of our capital markets as, as, as possible. Um, so you talked about AI. You know, clearly that's an area where there's both, you know, potential risks around you know, discrimination, bias, uh, in decision making, but also huge potential and opportunity for the financial services sector, and I think that's recognised by by the regulators, and is clearly a big priority for for the government. Um, you know, similarly with crypto, we had proposals from from HMT around the UK's regulatory framework for that uh, a few months ago. We'll have to see well, how that how that progresses. Um, and then in the capital market space, as as I said, um, you know, there's there's a number of different initiatives which are being taken as part of the Edinburgh reform package. Um, one of them is around how we can make the settlement system more efficient um, using technology. Also things like use of sandboxes to really encourage um, firms to deploy technology like distributed ledger technology where they can in a, in a safe space. I think, you know, what what's really important for firms is just to take a step back and look at all of these trends you know, not just from a regulatory perspective, but also from a business perspective, and try and ensure that they keep in pace with the innovation and change that we're seeing across the sector, but doing it in a way which is cognizant of the regulatory priorities that the policymakers here are, are articulating. Because if you don't do either of those things, you're going to find in five years' time that you're in you're in a, a difficult position. Absolutely, and 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 Adam, how 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 do you, how does that picture compare in the US? How are we seeing both firms and regulators trying to keep pace with that with that change and, and managing those risks and opportunities? Yeah, I think it's a, a somewhat similar uh, picture. Um, obviously, technology uh, goes at a pace that uh, neither the, ba- the banks nor the regulators control, uh, but have to adapt to. Uh, and they're all doing that to varying degrees. So, I, but I see uh, AI in particular as a very promising, exciting, but also to some extent um, scary, uh, at least if you're a regulatory seat, um, uh, development that has to be very well understood. And any policy making around that has to be uh, done very carefully. Uh, because you could easily stifle innovation uh, by making things too prescriptive too soon. Um, uh, or if you uh, have very kind of loose uh, regulation, it, it may unleash uh, some activity or behavior that you might find hard to uh, reverse. So it's, uh, it's a very, that's a very important space. We see a lot of great use cases. We're working with clients on that today. Uh, there are myriad of use cases, in particular in risk and regulatory management. Uh, so that that's very exciting. Um, I don't think the regulators are uh, yet at the stage of trying to make policy around it. Kind of like um, uh, climate and crypto, they've been trying to understand it uh, much better. This is in the bank regulatory side. Um, and I think that they will watch and learn uh, for quite a while as as banks develop their own approach to how they use AI to improve their operations and improve their efficiency, while also keeping an eye on things like how does AI 
uh, work in the context of model risk management, um, where you could would be concerned about bias and things like that. And how do you how do you do model validation um, in the context of, of of something like a generative AI? Uh, so uh, I think that that's an exciting area, um, but also one I think there's um, some caution on, on the part of the regulators, and and they'll watch and learn uh, for a while before being. Uh, prescriptive in in any way on, on on crypto in the United States I think we really have to play this out uh in Congress in order to get clarity right now um regulations essentially happening through enforcement uh by the SEC and CFTC mostly and um to some extent uh, at the state level as well uh and so but that's a creates a very kind of uncertain environment uh and i think you know congress has to has to weigh in here um to determine you know who who's what what regulatory body is to make the rules around this um what are the contours of that uh, that they distinguish between stable coins and other types of uh, digital assets for this purpose so um there's a lot more to play out there it's not clear uh when that happens um, there's definitely legislation that's moving through uh, the process, but it's hard to see the end game on that one uh, right now. Right. Thank you. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, it just shows in terms of those emerging areas that that level of uncertainty as that regulation develops, um, you know, it certainly creates challenges for firms as, as, as they're trying to kind of work through some of those use cases without having that kind of regulatory clarity. Thank you both very much for your time and your insights. It's been great to get that view across both jurisdictions in terms of the regulatory and supervisory priorities in both the UK and EU. And we've talked about a really broad range of issues, which shows just how wide ranging that agenda is at the moment. Um, and as we've discussed, there's a lot of convergence and, and similarities, but also some divergence too, um, for instance, on ESG. Um, so it's been really helpful to hear about how firms can navigate some of those challenges, particularly in a market which is evolving and changing so quickly. To our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this episode and thank you very much for listening. As always, if you found this conversation helpful, please subscribe to future episodes and rate and review the series as it helps other listeners to find us. If you'd like to hear more from us on risk and regulation, please look out for our regular publications on our website, which we'll link to in the show notes. And we'll be back next month with our next episode, which is going to be focused on a deep dive into consumer duty.